This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. We are trying to create an environment that someone who doesn't hunt, or someone who does hunt, but doesn't feel like that the industry best represents who they are as a person and as a hunter, feels comfortable entering into this conversation in a new way. Not all of your viewers are subscribing to your content. And so when they see a picture of a gripping grin, all they see is a bloodthirsty human. Something that I would hope is that people realize that those are wild animals and they have savage natures. And I think that we've done a lot of animals a disservice by personifying them or, or characterizing them. I think there needs to be some sort of a paradigm shift. You can experience what it's like to take the life of an animal that you're about to consume and then and then have to prepare it and process it yourself. There's a responsibility that each of us carries to ensure that this topic of hunting and land and, and access is not something that gets written about in history books, but is something that continues to thrive for generations. This is Brad Nethery with Modern Huntsman. And this is Tyler Sharp, also with Modern Huntsman, and you are listening to Living Country in the City. Y'all ready for your dose of flyover state spirit? Straight from the concrete jungle? Well, put down your latte and pull on your boots. It's time for Living Country in the City. Hey, y'all, welcome to episode 90 of Living Country in the City. Before we get started, I want to say a huge thank you to Sawyer Products for their continual support of the podcast. I really could not do what I do here at Living Country in the City without their support or without their gear. I have been using Sawyer products religiously on all my hunts throughout this past year, whether that's their water filtration, insect repellent, first aid, or the sunscreen. You really can't go wrong with Sawyer products. They have been doing this for over 30 years. Their gear is tested and it is absolutely bulletproof. So make sure y'all check them out at Sawyer.com. All right, y'all, rounding out this January, I have another really awesome episode with y'all. Um, I have actually been trying to link up with these guys for over a year at this point, and uh, we just have not been able to get our schedules to match. Well, finally, I was able to get Mr. Tyler Sharp and Brad Nethery of Modern Huntsman on the line. You guys, if you haven't checked out this publication, it is absolutely incredible. It's doing amazing things for the public image of hunting. So I hope you all enjoy this episode. All right, y'all. Welcome to episode 90 of Living Country in the City. Uh, today, we are talking with Brad Nethery and Tyler Sharp of Modern Huntsman. Guys, thank you so much for hopping on today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, glad to be here. Awesome. So... I always like to start out with just a little bit of background about yourselves. How did each of you, maybe kind of the elevator pitch version of how you guys got your starts in hunting? Well, I'll uh, kick it off. This is Brad. Um, so my start five years ago, and uh, I always want to qualify. You know, I'm not the expert hunter. I'm not the guy that you turn to 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 get us 
or to try and really help you understand and dissect this whole thing. Um, I'm somebody who is still soaking in so much that this industry have, has to offer from experts and uh, conservationists and uh, philanthropists in the industry who have been in this far longer than I have. But um, from, uh, from a very early age, my dad and I would go shoot guns just to be together as father and son. And then maybe once a year we'd go and, and uh, dove hunt out in a, on a family ranch. But it was really more time that we could be together than it was a way to go out and go hunting. So if you ever asked me, you know, in my younger years, if I was a hunter, I'd, I'd say no. And I wouldn't even want to associate with hunters. I had kind of a, a less than desirable perception of what the hunter looked like. And it was, there was a stigma in my mind of what a hunter looked like. And uh, anytime I say that, I get two responses. The first response is people nodding their head going, yep, I totally get that. And the other response is, what are you talking about? I have no idea what <laughs> you mean. And the two camps don't really coexist or they haven't historically. And so really the reason in founding Modern Huntsman was a way to bridge those two camps together and help them to see each other's side in a different perspective. And um, hopefully, you know, so that we can get to a point in society where those two bodies of people don't look as uh, different and as odd to each other as they do today. Awesome. So how Tyler, how'd you get uh, your start in hunting? Sure. So I grew up in Texas um, and, and didn't hunt a lot when I was a kid. I mean, I, I certainly did. Uh, I spent a lot of time outdoors. It's more one of those things where I was hunting, but didn't know I was hunting, right? I was always tracking wildlife and trying to catch reptiles and, you know, find animals and all that kind of stuff. And then it really wasn't until, so I went to a film school out in Los Angeles. I went to USC and then upon graduation, I actually moved to Tanzania and sort of got immersed in the African, you know, safari outdoor adventure hunting scene. And that's kind of when I really got started um, and, and lived in the bush for five months and really got a pretty thorough education on what it's like to be in the middle of nowhere and, and survive off of, of meat that's hunted. And, um, and then coming back to Dallas, you know, was sort of reimmersed in, into that world and, and started to just turn that into a career. Um, but for me being in that environment in the traditional hunting industry, and then I've, you know, been a freelance freelance writer, photographer, filmmaker in that industry for probably 11 years now, I started to see some patterns on the hunting side. It, you know, it was usually a room full of members of the same club, all agreeing with each other. And when the conversation about hunting left the room and, you know, engaged with non-hunters, it, it ceased to be productive. And, and then on the other side, when I would come back from some of these, you know, adventures overseas and that sort of thing, the reaction that I got from people who in most cases didn't know how hunting worked or, or how it played a role in conservation. Uh, and, and that their opinions of those matters were based off of things they had read online or, or things they'd seen on Facebook and, and often were, were misinformed. And so a lot of the work I did sort of surrounded this theme of a lack of communication between hunters and non-hunters, but then also a lot of misinformation surrounding those topics. And so that was a theme that I was exploring a lot in my own work and over the years, uh, I just started to try to figure out how to put a name to it or what it was going to be. And I never really knew. And and that's kind of how Brad and I met um, was was in that context. And it just happened to be the right time. And um, and and we, you know, sort of connected over through Instagram and um, and, and started to kind of piece the concept of Modern Huntsman together. So it definitely sounds like the two of you were were working parallel paths kind of in that same mindset, uh, and you just, like you said, you just kind of happened upon each other at the right time. So it's pretty interesting because, you know, we were coming from very different backgrounds in the industry where I was a non-hunter kind of, you know, warmly walking into this industry and having a curiosity for what it provided. Cause I'd been exposed to, um, at this time I'd kind of been exposed to new creatives in the space and brands and organizations who I thought were doing a really great job at presenting hunting in a way that formerly the the general uh, mass media and also kind of the the grip and grin hunting media had really over consumed 
the way that I uh, had been exposed to hunting. And now I'm being introduced to these people who have a totally different philosophy and they present themselves differently. And for the first time, me as a meat eater and never wanting to call myself a hunter could understand why people would be really proud to represent that they're hunters. And so in light of that, wanting to start uh, a, some sort of an outlet that could be a pedestal for these creatives and the brands and the organizations that were doing a really great job at their presentation, but didn't really have a collective outlet to come together and, and spread their voice. I wanted to create that, but didn't really have the, um, the know-how inside the space to make the voice not only inspiring and uh, convicting, but to also be hyper-relevant and full of um, real education that really would transcend beyond just kind of the, the inspiration and warm fuzzy space, but we could also talk about topics like conservation and ecology and, and talk on heavy topics like the, this, the uh, topics in Africa and, and grizzly bears and wolves and all that goes into that. And so about that same time, I'd been introduced to um, Tyler through a friend uh, who he didn't tell me where he lived or um, any information. He just said, hey, I've got a buddy who, who really shares a lot of these same philosophies. And I feel like you guys would get along great. And who knows, maybe I could, maybe he could like contribute to the magazine in some, in some form, or maybe uh, y'all could, you know, work together in some capacity. So I reached out to Tyler via Instagram and, um, you know, I thought that he for sure lived in Africa or Montana <laughs> or somewhere, right, or in Scotland. And um, so I reached out to Tyler and just wanted to have a phone call with him. And he said, you know, where are you guys based? I was like, well, we guys, me, are based in Dallas, Texas. And uh, he was like, no way. That's where I am. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were able to meet up over coffee and start kind of having this really unique conversation of both of us having a, the exact same vision, the exact same uh, ideology of what we wanted to create, but coming from two very different backgrounds and reasons for wanting to create this. So met Tyler and, uh, and had this conversation. And then uh, I think his perspective on kind of the rest of this is better than mine. So I'll let him pick it up from here. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was very serendipitous because, you know, when I, I saw Modern Huntsman pop up, pop up on Instagram, I thought for sure these guys are in Bozeman or they're in Denver or, or Seattle or something. And it turns out that we were both in Dallas, Texas. And so <laughs> we met up over coffee. And, and as Brad said, you know, he kind of started to unfold you know, what his vision was and, and kind of what he wanted to do. But there were certain parts of it that weren't as clear and, and he wasn't sure which direction he wanted to go. And I apologize in advance to your listeners if anyone's heard us say this before, but I feel like this is a quote that just needs to go on t-shirts or something. But Brad and I, I, I kind of said, hey, I know this is going to sound weird because we just met, but what you're describing is probably going to be my life's work and you need to just hire me as your creative director right now. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, okay, well, maybe we finish this coffee and, you know, we keep talking about it. And so anyways, it, it was just kind of one of those worlds colliding situations. And, you know, Brad and I do have similar creative backgrounds in terms of our skill sets, but they're different enough that it offers us variety. You know, he is uh, much more experienced in, you know, the branding and marketing side of things. And then I have a lot more experience in the actual content production and filmmaking and photography. And, uh, but then combining that together, we kind of have a complete package in terms of, you know, being able to produce, uh, strategize and distribute media. And so that's kind of where it started. And, you know, we, we have another business partner named Elliot who, who helps us, on the logistics and, and management side and making sure that this is a, uh, the ship is staying afloat. Um, and then my girlfriend, Katie Smith is our designer. So she makes it, makes the the publication look beautiful. And, and so we kind of just, I know that I was a total pain in the, in the beginning just because of what I had experienced in the hunting industry. And I, and I know that there's a lot of conflict and disagreement and, you know, lines being drawn in the sand of, you know, are you a bow hunter or a rifle hunter? Are you traditional or compound? Do you wear camo or solid colors? There's all this sort of dissension. And then on top of that, 
the opposition and criticism that comes from outside of the hunting world, from people who don't understand how it works or they have a negative perception. And in most cases, that's not based on actual experience. That's based on, um, you know, a stereotype or a news you know, headline they see or, or just a general right versus left kind of thing. And so we had to kind of lay out this roadmap of, okay, if we're going to do this thing, these are all of the things we have to look out for. And, you know, in the very beginning, we had to be very strategic with, you know, the things we're saying, the people we're involving, the, the photos we're putting out there. And so it kind of led to this path of deciding that we wanted to produce a book and you know it could you call it a magazine you call it a publication but i mean it, the, our first one was a 204 page book and we did a kickstarter raised 100 grand and produced these things ourselves without any advertising or sponsors and uh really i knew in my mind that it was needed in terms of a missing link in the hunting industry but also in the communication gap between a hunting and a non-hunting world and brad sees you know saw the opportunity of a new media opportunity. And, and for us, he, he had come from a non-hunting background and saw a situation where there was all this amazing work, people who were creating very thoughtful, artistic, and, and respectful work surrounding hunting, but no one was concentrating that into a central you know, outlet or, 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 or media forum. And so that's kind of the strategy we had here. One, it was from a media side, it was from communication side and then, you know, in, in terms of the publication, actually putting this down on paper and sort of concentrating the voice and the vision. And we managed to do that. And we've sold, I think, over 8,000 copies of volume one since February. And then we just released volume two, uh, which is themed around public lands in October. And according to Brad yesterday, we've sold almost 4,000 of volume two in Less than two months. Yeah, which I've, is remarkable. We we had no idea it was going to take off like that. <laughs> yeah, I've got to I've got to say I uh, I remember when I hopped on. You know, we had we started talking. I think right before the uh, the release of of volume one. I want to say is when we started chatting. Uh, probably a little bit before this time last year, and uh, I remember when I when I finally got. Uh, volume one, I, I I got it in the mail and I'm like, holy crap! I thought this was gonna be a magazine. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm like, this is a, it's it's one of those funny things where I I I remember I opened it up and I I looked at it. I was like, oh man! And like I there's like it was it it, it, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but like I almost had this like little bit of reverence when I went opened it up and like looked through it the first time. It was like I almost treated it like a coffee. I would a coffee table book, uh, you know, where you have it out nice, and when you do go through it, you're, you know, you're very careful with everything, and and uh, so I, I I gotta say it was it was definitely a work of art in and of itself, and um, it was it was really really cool to get that that first one, and uh, uh, volume two is definitely on the Christmas list. Um, I'm I'm holding off purchasing because I get in trouble if I buy anything this close to Christmas. Uh, <laughs> I, am, I know what I'm, you mean. I'm a 35 year old man, and my mother still gets on my case if I buy anything close to Christmas. Um, <laughs> well, thank you for that. It's uh, that's something that we had um, talked to our, I guess, kind of our European counterparts, our UK counterparts, the Pace Brothers, who have been you know heavily involved in Modern Huntsman since really day one. And they are our exclusive um, distribution partner in the UK. And, um, you know, one thing that they were talking about when, when uh, you know, they were, again, they were kind of part of the, the early Kickstarter days and had us on their podcast um, before we had released Volume 1. And they caught the vision but really didn't know what to expect from the outcome. Uh-huh. And so we were on a, an interview with them, I guess, I don't know, three or four months after we launched volume one and they're like, you know, same thing. We just, you know, we believed in you guys and we loved the vision and didn't really know what it was going to turn into. But then we saw volume one. It was like, Oh, they did it. (laughs) (laughs) They actually did it. And, uh, it's just rewarding to hear things like that because we wanted to set the expectation, you know, somewhat low, not, not too low, but, um, you know, there's really no word or, or phrase or term that, really describes what this type of a book is. It's mm-hmm. 
it's unique in and of itself. And, yeah, we need um, we need to come up with a new term. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so to be able to kind of hear people's responses and how it how it uh, you know impacted them in their own unique ways is really really fun to hear. I feel like you guys could release like a a, a limited edition set or something that are actual coffee table books with a hard cover and and everything because i would i would (laughs) kill to have those things out um we certainly talked about it but i you know i think you know you guys you guys talked a little bit about it where we're at an interesting point you know i i'm also obviously super new to hunting and learning about all of this but just looking across kind of the history of everything and and where it used to be where it is now and it it's it's at an interesting place in in history I feel like right now because of the technology we have because of really everyone's ability to have a voice across you know that's heard across the world uh, that's something that I don't know, you know, 10, 20 years ago really wasn't as much of a thing. I guess, I don't know, I guess not 10 years ago at this point. I'm, it's, I still think the 90s were 10 years ago, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, 20, 20, 30 years ago, um, it really wasn't a thing. People didn't have this ability to, in an instant, put out a message that's seen around the world. And it's, it's uh, very, powerful powerful thing but it's a very dangerous thing and um you know i i think we're seeing a big shift a big kind of polarizing shift you have two camps you know or you have one side that's like that is trying to take this responsible approach of outreach and like yourselves are you're doing one with the magazine but also just with everything else there's a whole group of people that focus on outreach and wanting to present hunting in a responsible way and are focused on the longevity of it and the growth and sharing what is amazing about it. And then to some extent, there's also the group that's like, ah, screw them all. I'm going to, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to post as many bloody animals as I want and this and that. And, and I see, you know, I see to some extent, both sides. I, you know, I want to be able to if I if I shoot a deer, I want to be able to post a, a for lack of a better term, grip and grin or whatever it is. But you know, there's more considerations to that, and um, the audiences have changed. It's not not the time where you have to order, you know, order a VHS tape to be able to see this stuff. Uh, audiences have changed. And so it's important how we present that. And um, it's cool to see you guys uh, leading, being part of that charge, if you will. Yeah, we, we talk about that a lot. That If we were to boil down what the value of Modern Huntsman is or what it is that we're trying to really establish in the industry, it's the tone, right? We're trying to reset the tone of the industry. And... Um, You know, there's nothing objective that I think hunters uh, are, you know, the the ones who are doing best case scenario, you know, they're they're conservation minded. They they only take their allotted amount, um, you know, who are true ethical hunters. Nothing objective that I think most people would disagree with. Um, Most people who are meat eaters or carnivorous would disagree (laughs) with. Uh, it's the way that they present themselves. It's the tone that's used. And the thing that the people who, like me, five years ago, six years ago, who would have um, kind of said, I don't want to be represented as that, it was the fact that, like you're exactly like you're saying, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you had to subscribe to something to be witness to hunting content. You had to buy the VHS or you had to subscribe to Field and Stream or um, you had to have a buddy who was a hunter and he'd show you the pictures of his whitetail that he got, you know, that he kept in his billfold and show you around the water cooler that day. (laughs) You had to somehow subscribe and submit to to, um, witnessing that content. And 
um, you could have some context behind it. Nowadays, with the rise of social media, I mean, it's fantastic that we all have a voice and we all have a vote on something. But one thing that many hunters forget is that not all of your viewers are subscribing to your content. Some people are coming at it cold turkey and they had a bad experience or they've had a, you know, a, a, a wrongful perception. And so when they see a picture of a grip and grin, all they see is a greedy, bloodthirsty human who gets some sort of a rise out of killing animals and has bypassed 17 grocery stores where they could have bought meat that's already dead <laughs> and instead chose to go take another life, right? There's no context. There's no subscription to that train of thought. And, and while I fundamentally believe that hunters should be proactive on, on these public platforms that we have in front of us, like social media, um, we need to rethink the way that our tone is presented because some people don't have the same train of thought. They don't have the context. They don't have the ability to unsubscribe to that. And so they're only given one snapshot and that snapshot is going to determine a lot for them, especially if it's one snapshot times 30,000 hunters who, you know, communicate the exact same way. It's yeah. I've had, I've had this conversation a, a lot, uh, offline with uh with a few people i've 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 talked a lot with uh, a guy uh, brad luttrell i've had him on the podcast before too he runs the go wild app and um we've talked a lot about you know your audience and you know it's one like you said it's one thing if you've got a private audience of of people who you know are a supportive community then you know what yeah, throw up that shot that may not be the most refined and, you know, cleaned up, whatever, if if it's being shared with a group of of close friends or hunters who you know are going to understand the story behind that. Um, but when, when you don't know who your audience is going to be, uh, we all have a responsibility as hunters to protect what we have because it's not um, – it can disappear. Uh, you know, as a guy living in California, <laughs> I, I know far too well how quickly, um, our ability to, uh, to hunt can disappear. And so I, you know, I see, I see it getting whittled away bit by bit. Um, yeah. Well, something to take into account here, you know, we, we always talk about the quote old guard of the hunting industry and, and some of these, you know, the, the voiceover you did earlier about, oh, well, we don't care. We're going to do whatever we want. And the, unfortunately, there is this sort of I'm going to go down with the ship mentality. And a lot of times it's, it's typically older generation who have have not they didn't really see the transition from the way it used to be to the way it is now. And it doesn't matter if you don't like the fact that people are opposed to traditional bloody grip and grin photos. That's a reality. And we live in a world where if you post a photo online, not only can that information be shared all over the world, but there are people and organizations out there that are specifically looking for content to slander hunting and to use that as fodder to derail, you know, the the perception of, of hunting. And we can all agree that hunting has a bad rap right now. We have a it's a bad reputation. And whether that's through the actions of individuals who are disrespectful or, or we feel don't rep best represent our demographic or it is through misinformation from other organizations with with you know harmful intent, that's the reality. And so you can either accept that reality that you are responsible for your own actions and that if you don't care and you are continuing to recklessly post things with no context or no explanation, you might have not you might, you are having negative, you know, there are negative consequences to that for the rest of us. And so I think you just have to be aware of your environment and know that, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't share trophy photos with your friends and family, but perhaps know your audience there and, and the context and that your actions have, you know, consequences. And so, you know, you can either be a part of the problem or, or a, a way to, to, you know, be a part of the solution. And that's kind of what we're, attempting to do here is that hunting has a PR problem and we have intentionally removed ourselves from the traditional debate, the us versus them, this 
what in my opinion has kind of become a childlike mud throwing competition and have circumnavigated that to a different forum where emotions are not on high and defenses are not up and we're trying to create a situation where constructive conversations can happen and through messaging and tone we are trying to create an environment that someone who doesn't hunt or who's interested in hunting or someone who does hunt but doesn't feel like that the industry best represents who they are as a person and as a hunter feels comfortable entering into this conversation in a new way and you know, our intention is literally to be the light at the end of a very dark PR tunnel for hunting. And I think that it's working and I think we are getting recognized for that. And not everyone sees it, right? There are very much these, I'm going to go down with the ship mentality people who see that and they're like, oh, you guys are apologetic hunters and you're bowing to the left. And uh, no, that's not true. And, and I use this metaphor in the same way that, you know, that your wife you know, you could talk to her and, and, and you could either say you want to make love or you want to screw. And the difference in tone there depends on, you know, the way that that's accepted. And in the same way with hunting, you know, using the word kill versus using the word harvest or or gather uh, is is just a matter of respect. And so it's a it's a it's more about the the, the way that you're using your your words and, and showing respect towards the subject matter. And I think that the fact that an audience can perceive that we are presenting this content with respectful intent is making a difference. And some companies are organizing that, or I'm sorry, they're recognizing that. And I, we are hoping that over time that will trickle down into the industry and that that will become, you know, a, a little bit more of a standard so that, you know, and it's not for us about converting a ton of people to become hunters. It's more about the 70 to 80% of the population in the United States who doesn't hunt. We are hoping to improve their perception of hunting so that they view it in a little bit more of a light. So if a vote comes up or if a con conversation starts, that they're going to be a little bit more informed and that they're going to be basing their decision on facts, on actual people, on what, what we feel to be our ethical approaches to hunting, so that they may say, you know what, I'm actually okay with it this way. I'm not okay with that way, which is this sensationalized Facebook post. I'm okay with it being like this. This is more respectful and, and sensible. Um, and, and through presenting it in that way, you know, we're hoping to show people, okay, there's more than just what you see online. There's this whole other world for people who live quiet lives and don't shout it from the rooftops. Please take that into consideration before you pick up your pitchfork. And to that end, it's been really cool because we've had more emails and Instagram messages and Facebook messages from um, people who are vegans or who are um, who have kind of toyed around with the idea of you know, veganism or, or a, a, a group that would historically be fundamentally opposed to this. And they have said, you know, I won't necessarily change my lifestyle and my habits. However, um, I'm not going to continue sharing along or passing along these, you know, negative, horrible rants about what hunters are because I've been introduced to, you know, a different way of thinking about it. And man, that is the most excellent form of success we could ever imagine because like tyler said a lot of these topics and these issues are coming to a vote i mean we're seeing right in front of us uh pieces of of uh public land that has been designated for the american people by uh by conservationists and preservationists that this is becoming you know that's being stripped away from us with or without our vote and most people don't really have a full understanding of the the societal impact of that and mostly because hunters are the ones who have the greatest interest in those particular topics and they're the ones who are fighting to keep uh this thing around and if hunters are the ones who are on the outside and the ones who are ostracized from society then nobody will take them seriously and so to the ones who to the people who are that kind of, like Tyler said, the old guard hunter who has that complex of, you know, I'm going down with the ship and, you know, I'm going to put out whatever I say and it doesn't matter what people think. Well, 
there's a generation of people behind you who are going to be impacted by that. And there's a responsibility that each of us carries to ensure that this topic of hunting and land and, and access is not something that gets written about in history books, but it's something that continues to thrive for generations. Absolutely. Uh, on that note, we're going to pause for just a second, hear a word from one of my partners. All right, y'all, we all know that it's possible to get into the backcountry and take that big buck or bull with a set of surplus store camo and a Walmart tent. But let's face it, quality gear can often make the difference between checking out early due to sheer misery and pushing through just a little bit further to find success. But all this gear can start to add up, and that's why I'd recommend shopping at Black Ovis. They carry high-performance hunting gear from all the top brands like Vortex, Crispy, Sitka, First Light, Mountain Ops, and Stone Glacier, often at a nicely discounted rate. I've yet to find anywhere that offers a more reasonable price, plus their shipping is free and their customer service is unmatched. Additionally, by making the choice to shop at Black Ovis, you're supporting a company that's involved in and gives back to the hunting community. It's where I do all my gear shopping, and whether you're just looking to replace a few items or build out a brand new kit, Black Ovis is the one-stop shop for super solid hunting gear. Additionally, you can help support Living Country in the City by doing all your gear shopping at Black Ovis. Visit livingcountryinthecity.com slash blackovis, bookmark the link, and use it whenever you do your shopping. And we're back. Um, one of the things, you know, you guys were talking about just was really finding a time to have that conversation where I, I think you said where emotions aren't high and defenses aren't up. And it's so very important on, I think, on both sides of the aisle. Um Finding a, a time to have these conversations about hunting when the person you're speaking to, when they're not all riled up, when they're not angry and emotional. But I think it's important for us to remember that we need to find a time to have these conversations when we're not irritable and emotional. And Because I know there have been times where I've gotten messages on Instagram or I've had people confront me in, uh, one way or the other and – my initial reaction is to tell them to F off and uh, I'll do what I want when normally I would any other situation, depending on, you know, how I was approached, I, I would sit down and have a conversation with them. And it's come to a point where when I'm able to have a rational, calm conversation with someone about hunting, regardless of how opposed they are, I've never had it result in a negative outcome. Uh, like you said, it may not change their lifestyle. It may not change their mind, but at least they're walking away educated and typically with a greater understanding of the respect hunters have for wildlife and our wild places. And I just did a, a recent podcast with Rachel Carey, and we talked a, a lot about that. And, you know, I won't, I won't tell the story again my, for my poor listeners, but uh, long story short... I had a conversation with a, um, a group uh, from the UK uh, that I ran into, and one of them was a vegan who absolutely hated using the term two birds with one stone, which I laugh because now there's a meme going around on Facebook uh, about PETA trying to change all of those phrases. But, you know, I sat down, had a conversation with them, and the result turned out to have be them thanking me for helping them understand more what hunting is. And so I think what you said is critical. Finding the correct time to have those conversations is absolutely critical because um, I, I really have never had an experience turn out negatively uh, when I'm able to have that conversation. The only time it turns out negative is when you're on Instagram and somebody's calling you a murderer over uh, – over a message and you're snapping back saying, yeah, well, suck it, UMFer, and all of that good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> My response to that is always, well, look in the dictionary and see what the term murder means. It is a human killing another human. So first of all, check your logic. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I think that, you know, you, you make a really good point there. And, you know, it's one, one of the things that we always like to talk about here is that, 
you know, we're privileged to live in a day and age where we have the luxury of choosing a dietary lifestyle. And it's not just a diet anymore. It's now a lifestyle. So being vegan isn't just about the way you're eating. It's a whole lifestyle. It's a spiritual thing. It's a a perception thing. It's the clothes you wear and it's become like a club. And that's great, right? If that's what's good for your body and that's what you think is best for your health, do that. But don't put it on someone else. Just because you've chosen that doesn't mean that you're better than someone else. You know, and I think that, and that's across the board. That's just general virtue and ethics as as human beings, right? Judge not kind of situation. And I think that are there people who are bad examples of hunters? Absolutely. But there's just as many, or I don't want to say there's just as many. There are certainly bad examples of people who are vegans that are just aggressive and, you know, just, just are looking for fights and they're picking fights on purpose. And so... That whole, we're trying to remove ourselves from that whole atmosphere and try to have conversations on an even keeled level that accomplish what you were talking about, where there's, there's education, where there was previously misinformation. We're trying to bridge a gap between, you know, opposing lifestyles, whatever you want to call it. And a lot of times we have found that people who might call themselves animal rights activists there is a lot more in common with someone like that and a and a dedicated, you know, traditional hunter than you might think because that is centered and revolves around a love and respect for wildlife. And sure, it's a difficult pill for an animal lover to swallow that you could kill something that you love. But when you look at it in the larger context of wildlife management and the fact that we as humans have completely screwed up the natural order of things, we are now required to help manage that. And as urban cities expand and as populations expand, wild places diminish and wildlife corridors diminish. And so we only have a certain amount of these places and and wildlife left. And that is a resource that has to be managed. And, and, and so in that sense, you know, a, a regulated system of population census and issuing a specific number of tags to determine a, you know, a conservation ratio. Uh, and then there is the aspect of the food, right? It, in my opinion, it's a, if you're going to kill something, you should be eating it. And if you're not going to eat it, you need to find someone else who's interested in eating it because that. I'm not okay with that either. And just killing for the for the fact or the fun of it is, in my opinion, unethical. However, there are situations where they do have to do massive culls in different parts of the world where there is a extreme overpopulation of a specific species and it's affecting the ecosystem and it's killing grass species and other species are, are um, you know suffering because of that. There are situations where they do have to mass cull animals, ideally. They have a system in place where that meat is going to people who need or want it. But that whole system of, you know, education, explaining how it works so that if you wanted to participate in that system, you could. If you don't, that's great. But let's be diplomatic and respectful and agree to disagree instead of picking up rocks and pitchforks and, you know, starting a riot. One of the interesting things I've heard, you know, is you know, you talk about how much someone, say, an animal rights activist has in common with a with a hunter. And uh, w- one of the ways I heard it phrased, and I think I said it a few times on the podcast, it, that I always thought was, was a very good way to look at it is we do have that in common, but it's the, the broadness of how we look at things that is where we differ, where we're in, yeah, we're both, uh, both groups are incredibly passionate about about animals. Um, whereas hunters, you would say are more passionate about a species and the health and, and thriving of that species and the whole ecosystem in more of a broad fashion versus an animal rights activist or a, a, a vegan or whoever that may be. They look at that one single animal and they're very directly passionate about that exact animal. That fox that is sitting out on the fence, that particular deer, that one single, like they're passionate about each and every single one of those. And I think, um, you know, there's nothing wrong about either of those views. And, you know, they're, they're just slightly different focus. And I think if we could, like, if we could get past 
our specific focus and see where that other person's coming from, the conversations can get a lot more productive. Yeah. And it's also something that I would hope is that people realize that those are wild animals and they have savage natures and they will kill and eat the first thing that crosses their path if they're hungry. And I think that we've done a lot of animals a disservice by personifying them or, or characterizing them, giving them names or making them into cartoon characters and making them more human-like than they are. Do they have personalities and intelligence? Absolutely. But they're at, they're wild animals. And I think for us, sure, we call ourselves a civilized species, but at the end of the day, we are also wild animals. And sure, we've developed some... Uh, you know, modern uh, behaviors and fancy, you know, in some ways, silly ways of dressing. But removing yourself from the natural order is a mistake, in my opinion. And if you choose to do that, and you decide to live a lifestyle that's no longer in connection with the natural world, that's fine. But it's reckless and ignorant to think that that world doesn't still exist, and that there aren't still dangers, or there aren't still instincts and wild you know, behaviors that will happen. And I think that's why a lot of people get gored by buffalo in uh, or bison in Yellowstone and, and grizzly bear attacks, or, or that's why every year in the Serengeti, some tourist gets eaten by a lion because they think that those animals are tame and they're, oh, they're not moving and we're getting close to them with the land cruiser so I can get out and take photos. Yeah, well, guess what? Snack time for, for Simba. And, and so I think that that's a major problem. And so even if you do love animals and, and you think that they are these reverent creatures and they are, you need to respect the fact that they're still part of a wild natural order and, and that that needs to stay as much as it can, you know, wild. Well, you know, people have this, this fantasy world they live in where, you know, bears live in happy uh, nuclear families and the, you know, the boars don't go eat the cubs um and that when animals die in in nature uh you know they go climb to the top of a mountain and lay down in a field of clover while the entire every species of wildlife comes and pays their respects and um you know we've watched too many disney movies where you know squirrels come in and sit on your shoulder and make you dresses um it's this this fantasy world people live in and it's you know Bears are not happy nuclear families. Squirrels don't make dresses and animals in the wild die in nasty, horrible, horrible ways. Like there is not a nice way to die in the wild. They don't – most animals do not die of old age. <laughs> sorry to – sorry if anybody – if this is coming as a surprise to anyone, I apologize for uh, for breaking your heart about this. But, you know, I think we – go for it. I was going to say, you know, I think, I think too, the, the conversation typically gets really hasty by this point. If you're a vegan, because (laughs) as vegans, you're going to, I mean, naturally you're going to also present your side of the case. Right. And, and what we're talking about right now is assumptions made by us as humans over a historical time period. Right. We're saying that animals are, are a lesser species. Because we don't have a way to communicate with them, and and vegans would make that point. You know, you you you're not you're not an animal, so you don't know what it's like, right? And and they would make a, a different case. This is where most conversations in this industry get really really hasty, and we intentionally want to stay out of that particular conversation in the light of there is not a lot of production that comes from this with two very opposed parties, but the party that can that can digest this in a much different way is a party who's carnivorous, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who goes to the grocery store and they buy their steak and they eat bacon and they eat eggs and they do all those things. And they just, they don't like hunters. They think hunters are just ridiculous and that's silly. And where we have to shatter that paradigm is in the theology that the way that animals in a factory farm, uh, industrial meat setting, that they are somehow raised and killed ethically. We have to get out of that paradigm because I think we've all seen enough documentaries and we've read enough statistics 
to understand that factory farming is not the answer, not for human sustainability, not for animal sustainability. And if we continue living with blinders on thinking that it is and thinking that that's the ethical choice, because somehow societally we've come to be the agreement that the way that you buy meat off of a butcher shelf is the same way that you buy a bag of chips in the aisle. It's the same emotional stimulation that you get. And you don't see beef as cow. You don't see pork as pig. You see it as consumable product that didn't have to die at some point, that didn't have to get plugged in the head, you know, and be bled out. And that's a really harsh reality. And it's really cool to see organizations who are trying to take an initiative to make a deeper connection between people who aren't necessarily hunters or don't really want to be associated with hunters, but want to have a deeper understanding of where their food comes from. Um, I just went to Rome Ranch here in Texas. That was um, Rome Ranch is, is owned by Taylor. Uh, Taylor, I'm so sorry. I'm blanking on your last name. Collins. Katie Collins. Thank you. Who is the founder of Epic Bar. <clears throat> and they just recently purchased a, a ranch in, uh, in the hill country in Texas. And they are taking the best approach to regenerative um, ranching. Everything from crops and, uh, and crop management to wildlife. And then they're inviting people who have never really had an experience with hunting or never had an experience with putting their hands on, on uh, their food before it's killed and then being, being privy to the process of, of killing an animal and bleeding it out. And um, they just had a turkey harvest at their ranch and we were invited to go be a part of it and to be able to watch so many people who, you know, for Thanksgiving, they're just, they're just given their turkey and they eat it and then they eat their stuffing and it's the exact same emotional experience that they have. But to witness these people have to go, wait a minute, that's a living turkey. And I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to kill that if I want Thanksgiving and I'm going to have to watch it when it's dying. I have to watch its body convulse and I'm going to have to experience this and know that what I did, I have to take ownership of that. And as a meat eater, if you don't have the responsibility and the weight of knowing what you've done to get the reward that you receive, it, there's, there's so much that's missed. And that's one of the areas that we really want to lean into is if you're a meat eater or if you are, you know, not a vegetarian or vegan and you perceive hunters to be somewhat demonstrative and, and, you know, off-putting, I think there needs to be some sort of a paradigm shift where you can experience what it's like to take the life of an animal that you're about to consume and have a relationship with it in the degree of being able to see it alive, see it killed, and then, and then have to prepare it and process it yourself. There's something that happens that you will never get by unwrapping plastic off of styrofoam and laying it on a skillet. I've said it a, probably a million times on the podcast where I think so many issues that that people have around our our diets and what we consume, uh, you know, whether it's waste or obesity or what, whatever it is, so many of them I feel like would be solved if more people had to take had to harvest and process their own their own meat. I mean, I just even look at myself and you know, I've always done my best to have a respect for for what I eat and um but I I I look at it now and I I I look at the difference versus, you know, a a pound of uh, you know, a pound or two of ground hamburger, how I how I treat that versus uh you know, a pound or two of of grand venison from a deer I've taken. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many, how many packages of hamburger I've left too long in the fridge. And, uh, you know, cause I, I don't get around to cooking it or whatever. And I just, oh, oh well. And I toss it out versus, you know, 
just a, a quarter of that of my ground venison from my deer, I I practically agonize over how I'm going to use that and cook it because it needs to be perfect because it's so important to me. And then, you know, I if I don't eat that entire thing in that first meal, I'll tell you what, it does not go bad in the fridge. Um, it uh, it definitely gets used that next day or in, within the next couple of days. All of it gets eaten. All of it gets consumed. And, uh, you know, I – I think so many of people's problems, like I said, with our diets, uh, you know, even aside from the respect aspect would be, uh, would be solved if people, uh, had to actually take responsibility for what they're consuming. Yep. Absolutely. So I wanted to talk just a little bit more about the, the magazine itself. Um, you know, we've, we've touched on it a little bit, but what, you know, uh, Say somebody hasn't picked up volume one uh, and or maybe they're looking to get uh, as we're recording this, you know, it's before Christmas. I know you guys have a lot of uh, deal. You kind of got a deal going on the the two edition package. But say somebody's about to pick this up. What kind of stories can they expect to uh, to see in Modern Huntsman? Sure. So volume one we kind of intentionally we didn't have a specific theme. I mean, I think the the theme we chose was a new narrative, meaning volume one, we wanted it to be introductory in tone, kind of showcase the type of people that we were including who we feel are the best possible representatives of, you know, an ethical hunting practice or an ethical hunting lifestyle, uh, both men and women, um, you know, w- w- increasingly the the topics and, and stories are going to be international. Uh, a lot of it was America, America West based, but people who, you know, these are generational hunters. They were, they were taught by their grandfather or their grandmother. They're hunting for their own food. Uh, they're teaching their kid how to do it, uh, what they've learned. And, and I think the difference between a lot of the stories that we showcase versus what you might've seen in previous hunting publications would be that, Ours is much more focused on what happens to you on that journey, the the path of the actual hunt versus what you killed or what you know the end result is. And so I think that you know that that becomes a little more a little more of a reverie in a in a you know Aldo Leopold or or a, or Henry you know Thoreau kind of Walden Pond in essence where you're you're reflecting upon your relationship with the nature and and the wildlife and, and what's that teach what's that teaching you and what are you learning from from the wind and the tracks and, and the different um, you know in, in the, those kinds of things and so I think with that um, you know it, it's presenting these stories in a different narrative with a different conclusion um, in a in a visual format that up to this point, in my opinion, no other hunting publication had, had been doing it this way. And that's, you know, that's a different part of our goal. I mean, Katie very much is trying to win design awards with this book. And then with volume two, we wanted to be a little more specific about public lands uh, with the common theme of it doesn't matter if you're a rock climber or a skier or, you know, an angler or a bird hunter that, we can all come together under common cause that public land is an important resource that should be protected and maintained. And instead of squabbling over the differences in a recreation that we choose, and there's other parts of the world where you don't have the luxury of choosing a recreation in Tajikistan, you don't get to choose if you're going to be a backcountry skier or a, you know, a fly fisherman. And, and, and you're certainly not, don't have the luxury to argue with someone about which one's better and who should be able to use the land. And so kind of trying to, to, to do a reality check there and presenting situations where people are of that mindset, uh, sort of a collaborative effort. And so I think, you know, one of the best representatives of that would be Chris Burkhardt, who is a you know, very accomplished, well-known outdoor photographer who's not a hunter. And, you know, I, I believe he's a vegan and he's, you know, shoots a lot for Patagonia and the REI type, um, you know, clients. And he agreed to be a part of our issue. And not only that, but his image is on the cover of the book. And it, it's just a testament to the fact that people do believe that public land is, is more important as a concept than whether, you know, whichever lifestyle, you know, recreation pursuit you choose. And then we kind of talked about what is it like when 
public and private intersect and situations where private landowners are working in conjunction with you know, conservation organizations or government agencies to increase wildlife corridors or to allow you know, wildlife management on their property and that kind of stuff. And then the third section of volume two was about you know, international case studies. What is it like in other parts of the world? What is it like in Scotland? What is it like in New Zealand or Africa or Argentina? Because it's very different from the United States. And so we were hoping that through comparing those situations, you can kind of learn you know, some pros and some cons and, and what's good and what's bad and what could be better. But at the end of the day, we have it, we have it pretty damn good in the United States. And, um, you know, are the majority of our public lands under threat? Not necessarily, but that doesn't mean that they couldn't, that they could be at some point, because once something goes private, it's, it's unlikely that it'll ever go back to public and that we as Americans own this. This is part of our wealth of inheritance as citizens of this country. And it's you know, millions and millions and millions of acres of public land. And a lot of it is in the West, but people don't know that that's theirs and that they have access to it and, and can go recreate whenever they want. And so trying to, to showcase you know, these stories in a new light, but then also with an educational angle. Uh, and then if they want to learn more, we were providing some resources about where they can go to learn, whether that's about public land or that's about hunting in your state or that's about, you know, any, anything within that realm. Uh, we're just trying to be a resource for that. In, in addition to the sort of mediators or moderators of a, a you know, a per constructive, progressive conversation about what are otherwise very heated topics. Sorry, I I keep doing this lately. I'm I'm enjoying my guests so much that I'm just sitting listening to you talk and kind of taking it in as if I'm I'm the one listening to the <laughs> podcast and not hosting it. Uh, <laughs> I I was like sitting there. I'm like, man, this is good. Like, it's it's weird, man. That's the that's the bad part about being a big such a big fan and running the podcast at the same time. <laughs> um, okay, uh, well. So if people wanted to thank you for that, by the way, oh. yeah, that's, that's really, that's really cool to hear. It is. No, it's like, I've, it's kind of been tough with this podcast cause we'll, uh, we'll get going. And, um, there's, there's been, I'd, I'd say out of the, the 90, there's been a handful, maybe about 10 where I keep losing myself and I'm like, gosh, I gotta, I gotta <laughs> stay on top of this stuff. Um, so you guys are you guys are definitely up there with Jim Shockey on how much I'm enjoying being on the podcast. Nice. <laughs> I used I used to work for Jim back in the day when I was a a young cameraman. <laughs> um. All right. So uh, if people wanted to find you guys, find Modern Huntsman, follow along on all the good stuff you guys are putting out. Uh, where are they looking? Sure. So you can check out modernhuntsman.com. Um, you, anywhere you go on the website, you'll be able to purchase an issue of volume one or volume two, or we have our bundles of volume one and volume two available for sale for a little bit of a discount. Um, you can also subscribe from our website to receive the issues as they're released every, uh, right now, every six months. And then, um, on social media, we're, we're definitely involved on Instagram. Uh, so you can check it out at modern huntsman and it's M A N singular and if uh do y'all have your own individual instagrams that people can follow also if they want to to see all the good stuff yeah so uh mine is just at brad nethery it's n-e-a-t-h-e-r-y awesome yeah and then mine is yeah mine is at tyler sharp photo so it's you know tyler and then sharp s-h-a-r-p no e photo <laughs> Awesome. Well, I will make sure to uh, link to these on the show notes page. That'll be livingcountryinthecity.com slash 90 for episode 90. Uh, as we're kind of winding down here, uh, you know, we talked uh, uh, before the podcast a little bit just about this podcast is really, uh, I like to focus it uh, on new hunters and people that may not have the traditional hunting background or feel like they don't have the resources to get into hunting. And I know, uh, to some extent, you know, that's a bit of a passion for you guys as well. Um, so if somebody came up to you, you know, or reached out to you and said, Hey, you know, I've, I've, I, 
been seeing what you guys have been putting out. This looks incredible. I want to be part of this. I want to get into the outdoors. I want to, I want to start hunting, but I just, I, I don't know. I'm a little intimidated. I, I don't have any background in this. What, uh, what advice or words of wisdom would you guys give to them? I mean, I, I would, I'd probably try to connect them with someone in their area because, you know, we, I wrote something in volume one at the very end. I think it was a few parting words that basically said, you know, if, if you decide, you know, there's a lot of people, we, we, we had a, an address to non-hunters that, you know, we appreciate, you know, your willingness to listen to a new perspective on this and that should there come a day where you decide that you do want to pick up a shotgun or, or a bow and learn how to hunt, where previously you might have thought you would find opposition, you would actually find an incredibly supportive community uh, that's been around for, for, you know, millennia. And so I think that a lot of people would jump at the opportunity to educate or take someone hunting for the first time. That That's kind of an honor to be able to help someone with that. So, you know, I think that we could certainly try to be a resource for that. Um, and I, I can, you know, say firsthand how intimidating it could be to walk into a local you know, sporting goods store, or uh, to if you have no idea how to get a turkey license or, or a waterfowl license, because it can be kind of a you know boys' club judgmental environment, and and so we're trying to provide access to that. So there are resources, you know, a lot of brands. Sitka Gear is really good about um, offering up educational resources for when it, the right time is to sign up for certain tags and how that works. But usually the fish and wildlife organizations for states are a great resource. You can call their office or show up and ask them. Texas Parks and Wildlife is an incredible organization that is actively trying to recruit new hunters, people who are interested in doing it. They will pair you, you know, with a game warden or, or they'll, you know, kind of teach you firsthand how to do it. They have different classes and educational resources, um, but I would say that you just got to own it. You got to, you got to walk in there knowing that you're new to this and, and don't try to act like you know what you're doing because it is something that requires some education and, and uh, a little bit of training, especially if you don't have experience with firearms. Um, but I think that the willingness to learn and the enthusiasm about wanting to pursue that lifestyle is something that I, I would say, you know, the majority of hunters would be honored to help, um, you know, bring about. That's awesome. Guys, thank you so much for taking the time. I know uh, it, things are, are going to be getting pretty busy for y'all coming up again. So I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to hop on and uh, share with our listeners. Um, I will, uh, like I said, make sure to link to all of this, uh, send people over your way on the show notes page. But uh, any any final thoughts before we sign off? Man, appreciate you and taking the time to talk to us. It means the world. Awesome. All right, y'all, that'll do it for episode 90 of Living Country in the City. Make sure you check out the show notes page at livingcountryinthecity.com slash 90. Check out links to everything we talked about in today's episode. Make sure y'all check out Modern Huntsman online. Sign up to uh, receive those publications. And in the meantime, keep it country, y'all. Thank y'all for listening to Living Country in the City. Get show notes and check out the blog, product reviews, events, and more at livingcountryinthecity.com. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life. Oh, that's awesome. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.